Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of January, St. Evans is supporting Remake, a community of fashion lovers, women's rights advocates, and environmentalists on a mission to change the industry's harmful practices on people and our planet. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that, to be fair... (laughs) Might be in the midst of a major moving-related breakdown, but I'm really relieved to be taking a break from unpacking to put together this episode. It's been a tough few weeks around here. Um, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 113. As always, there's a lot packed into this one. Packing stuff into this episode is a great way to avoid unpacking my possessions right now. Our special guest is Susan M. Massey, and she's back to regale you with more stories of her days behind the Clinique counter. We'll be talking about waste, retail work, and so much more. Somehow, we even brought flight attendants and go-go boots into the conversation. It's it's a journey. <laughs> you know, that was the last interview I recorded in my house in Burdenhand, and I got a little wistful and sad while editing it. You know, something I've learned as no matter how much change you've lived through, no matter how many times you've moved, and trust me, I've moved a lot, change never gets any easier. Before we jump into the second half of my conversation with Susan, you'll get to hear me say the word plastic approximately 1,000 times as I break down the personal care industry's reliance on plastic and how we, yes, that's you and me, can make an impact. And after my convo with Susan, it's sort of like a Susan sandwich over here, I'll break down how we can make slow fashion more accessible to everyone. So much happening here today. But first, let's take a few moments to thank some of our newish Patreon supporters. First is Priyanka Nigpal of St. Petersburg, Florida. Priyanka posts a lot of great environmental content on Instagram, and she shares my love for animals. So I'm honored to have her as a patron. Thank you so much. Mary Dumkey lives in Wisconsin, and I know... For sure that she must be super rad because my good friend and department co-host Kim is from Wisconsin, and she's one of the most delightful people I've ever met. So thank you for your support, Mary. Jennifer Jackson lives in West Virginia, and as soon as I saw her name and address come through on Patreon, I asked Dustin, who is from West Virginia and seems to know everyone who has ever passed through that state, 
I asked him if he knew Jennifer, and he was like, uh, I need more detail than that. Anyway, <laughs> Jennifer, if you know Dustin, let me know. And thank you for supporting Close Horrors. Oh, and P.S., just want to say, we've had a few Patreon supporters who knew Dustin IRL, so it's not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, next is Maggie Velestra. Oh, God, Maggie, I'm sorry if I messed up your name there. Uh, she lives in Massachusetts and, based on my internet stalking, has some really incredible hair. Thank you for your support, Maggie. And last but not least is Elizabeth Mullo of Portland, Oregon. I've actually known Elizabeth as an acquaintance for a long time. We have a lot of mutual friends, and she organized a lot of really cool fashion shows in Portland over the years. I mean, I would say she's an integral part of the indie fashion scene there. I was so excited to see her name come through. Hopefully, she'll be a guest on the podcast sometime soon. We have a lot to talk about. Thank you for your support, Elizabeth. If you would like to support my work here on Clothes Horse, you can find out more at patreon.com slash Clothes Horse Podcast. I do want to take a few minutes, like very few minutes, because there's so much else to do, <laughs> to talk about ads and Patreon, etc. You know I'm all about transparency around here. And since early 2021, when I launched my Patreon, I've allowed small brands to be advertised in the beginning of each episode as Pegasus sponsors. They pay $25 a month as a recurring pledge on Patreon. I also include them in the show notes of each episode. So if you're looking for one of those businesses, check out the show notes. And I also link them in each episode at closehorsepodcast.com. I thought this was a great way to get more exposure for small businesses at a low price that was accessible to them. And at the same time, it would help me cover the expenses of running the podcast. More on all those expenses in a few sentences. So that first eight minutes and 32 seconds of each episode, yes, I time it. I edit this thing, guys. I know how much time everything takes. That first eight minutes and 32 seconds is a group of amazing small businesses that support my work here, and you should support them too. Dustin and I made the executive decision to put them all together at the beginning of the episode because we thought it had a more premium NPR PBS vibe. If you've watched as much Call the Midwife as we have, you know that the sponsors go in the beginning. <laughs> And in a very calm, elegant, measured voice. Recently, someone left a review on Apple Podcasts saying that the first 30 minutes of every episode, which was ads, which is just fundamentally untrue. It hurt my feelings. But then I was like, you know what? Maybe I should just stop reading the Apple reviews because they damage my mental health. So I'm probably not going to do that again for a while. If you post a really great review that you want me to see, just send me a screenshot. <laughs> In December, I began taking ads from two brands, New Works and Revive Athletics. You've heard their ads. These brands, their values align with mine, and I'm so excited to have their support. I will continue to take ads from brands whose values align with mine. Um, they're few and far between, and when they cross my path and like my work, it is, it's amazing. Uh, it makes me really happy. So here's the deal. When we talk about money and podcasts, like what's going on there? Well, number one, podcasts cost money to make, like way more than you would expect and way more than I expected when I started. From hosting to recording to microphones to editing software, production plugins, website hosting equipment, it 
adds up. And until late last year, I was actually losing money by making clothes horse. That was a very dangerous place to be because I also did not have a job. I found myself and continue to find myself doing work that other podcasts outsource because I simply can't afford to do otherwise. And to be fair, I am lucky that I live with a professionally trained audio engineer who doesn't mind working for free. Thank you, Dustin. There are things I want to do with Close Horse that I literally cannot afford. For example, this one comes to top of mind. Someone reached out to me about it a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, you know, this has I've been troubled by this for at least six months trying to find a solution. And that is creating transcripts of every episode so people can read them. People who don't have access to podcasts, don't like podcasts, can't hear podcasts, can still get the information that's contained within the podcast. Here's the problem. Transcription services are so expensive. Like, for example, $1.25 per minute of audio. It's a lot of money per episode, right? And it wouldn't be if I had more money coming in, but it's just it's just not feasible right now. Um, sure, I could take the time to sit down and type out every every minute of this episode and every episode, but like that's just not feasible. You know, I'm working full-time now. Close Horse is an almost full-time job on top of that. In fact, it, I think it might be a full-time job. I'm just in denial about it. And so there's no extra time to do extra things. I know another person reached out and said, why don't you just make YouTube videos of every episode and then they could be captioned and people could have access. Once again, that's just time I don't have. There'd probably be another service I'd have to pay for for video. And on top of that, like, I just don't want to be on YouTube. I don't need another space that I have to moderate, another place I can hear from trolls. It's just like too much, right? So transcripts are a goal of mine. I hope to get there by the end of the year, but I also don't want to lose money on Close Horse to get there. Podcasts are only able to cover all of these expenses, whether it's transcripts or recording or equipment and everything else, and pay the people who make them by taking ads, using Patreon, or a combination of both. Some some podcasts that you listen to, in fact, a lot are actually on big podcast networks where the podcasters themselves are getting a paycheck. They're also taking big ads. They also don't have a lot of control over what they're doing. And to be honest, I don't think any of those (laughs) networks would like Close Horse because it's not like I'm going to take Stitch Fix ads. You know what I mean? Anyway, I had really hoped that Patreon would bring in more money than it does. But honestly, I'm just going to tell you this. I almost feel embarrassed to tell you this. Close Horse only has 128 patrons, and I'm grateful for all of them and their belief in the work that I do around here. But the fact is that very few people who listen to the show or follow an Instagram are willing or able to support my work. So yeah, I'm taking ads. Ads help a little bit from a financial perspective. So I'll continue to take them from good businesses when I have that opportunity. I ask you, the listeners, the Close Horse community, to be patient about things like Patreon shoutouts and ads, and support those who support the podcast when you can. If you believe the podcasters like myself should be paid or at least not lose money for their work, then I know you are okay with ads and Patreon mentions and whatever else. And if you're not, you know what? You can just fast forward because there's a lot of great information in here that I don't want you to miss. 
most, okay, maybe all podcasts wouldn't take the time to explain this to you, and they don't have to, but they're also not obsessing about accessibility in the way that I am. They're not thinking about their connection to their communities in the way I am. And I'm fine with leading the way there. And I just want you to be alongside me. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that one of my favorite brands, New Works, is an official sponsor of Clothes Horse. I've been a fan of Newark's for a long time because they have unique prints created by some of my favorite artists. If you're looking for an article of clothing that you can proudly outfit repeat for years and years and still receive compliments from strangers everywhere you go, Newark's is the brand for you. Seriously, one of my all-time favorite Newark's purchases is the Dahlia mock neck dress in the ash and chest print Better Days. Everywhere I go, someone is blown away. I may have recently received a free breakfast taco from a barista just for telling them where I got my dress. I've also found that while all of the New Works prints are unique conversation starters, all of the pieces themselves are easy to mix and match into an almost infinite array of outfits. Dress them up, dress them down. The outfit repeating potential here is massive. The silhouettes are designed to make you feel good, happy, and just generally full of positive vibes. And Newworks offers sizes extra small through 5X with plans to continue to expand sizing. And oh yeah, they make adorable kids clothes too. Well, now that we've covered all of the aesthetic reasons I love Newworks, let's get into the serious stuff. In a world where it's progress, not perfection, Newworks is constantly striving to do better and better, always with an eye on progress when it comes to sustainability. All Newworks products are made by a small team in limited batches in California. You won't see any ridiculous waste over here. In fact, the company is constantly working to reduce their waste. As part of this commitment, Newworks has been offering packs of scraps for all of you crafty types to turn into your own cool, unique projects. And they even sold a few zero waste pieces recently, which was really so cool and something you just don't see out there as much as you should, right? On top of that, Newworks now offers Full Circle, a resale platform for Newworks products, because the idea is that these clothes should remain in circulation and be worn just as much as possible for as long as possible. Newworks is a woman-owned, women-run business. There are no venture capitalists or big investors involved, just a small team of incredibly nice people. And they're working hard to do the best they can for the planet and its people. Everyone involved in creating Newworks products are paid a living wage. And Newworks tries to source all of their materials in the USA and work only with incredibly nice people. Their hope is that every Newworks purchase will be a shining gem in your closet that you will cherish forever or hand down to someone you love. Once again, I'm just so proud and so honored to have this amazing brand as a sponsor of my work here at Clothes Horse. Go see why I love them so much at newworks.com or find them on Instagram at newworks. And that's new N-O-O. 
Business is booming for the personal care industry. In fact, as I mentioned in the last episode, this industry is raking in about $500 billion per year globally. That's a lot of stuff, right? And unfortunately, this industry relies on plastic. In fact, as I also mentioned in the last episode, the industry spends $25 billion each year on packaging alone. In fact, it's one of those things, if you sit down and talk to someone who works in beauty, in cosmetics, in skincare, in shampoo, they will tell you, unfortunately, none of them will come on the show and tell you this directly, but they will tell me, so I can tell you, that the packaging is often the most expensive part of any personal care product you're buying. The ingredients themselves, they're just a tiny bit of the total cost of creating that product for you. $25 billion a year being spent on packaging. Most of it's plastic. We're talking plastic bottles, tubes, shrink wrap, compacts, little eyeshadow pots, mascara tubes, those little tops, you know, like you buy a bottle of shampoo and you unscrew the lid and then you poke through that weird white plasticky sort of foily seal and then put the cap back on that's made of plastic too and there's just so much more I mean go stand in your bathroom right now and look at products and try to reminisce about all the plastic you removed to get to them and they're probably still in a plastic container on top of all that according to Euromonitor in 2010 the olden days, the industry produced 65.62 billion plastic packaging units. By 2017, as beauty especially was just booming, skincare and cosmetics just blowing up across the world, that number was 76.8 billion. I would suspect it's even higher now. I couldn't find up-to-date statistics as a lot of this sort of research has fallen by the wayside during the pandemic. But those numbers are terrifying. Once again, 76.8 billion units of plastic packaging. And that statistic comes with a catch because that doesn't include little plastic scoops and stirrers, the gloves that come with home hair kits, all the brushes, those little sponge applicators that come with drugstore eyeshadow. I mean, I could go on and on. Once again, go in your medicine cabinet, go in your bathroom, go everywhere you store your stuff, get out your caboodles. My God, there's so much plastic and it it freaks me out. <laughs> More than any other industry, personal care relies on plastic. And of course, the vast majority of that is never recycled. We know that only about 9%, sometimes 11% if it's a good time, of all plastics are being recycled in the first place. Wow. How did everything end up being packaged in plastic? At least the stuff that we put on our bodies and our hair or in our mouths. I'm talking about toothpaste, guys. Slow down. How did all of this end up being just encased in plastic? Well, to understand how we reached this point, you have to look to the past. Yes, it's time for a little history lesson. Don't worry, I'll keep it short. I'm really bad with dates, so there won't be a lot of dates in here. <laughs> in the not-so-distant past, 
the personal care industry did not rely on plastic. And I'm talking like in the last century, soaps came in bar form. And to be fair, a lot of soap still does, but it's wrapped in plastic in the best case scenario. In the worst case scenario, it's actually in a plastic bottle and it's called shower gel, right? Perfumes, which were a symbol of luxury, were packaged in elaborate glass containers. Hair care products were powders or pomades packaged in tins or jars. In fact, personal care just wasn't the enormous industry that it is today. And it's not just because they didn't have Instagram. It's so much bigger than that. The big shift into personal care, this obsession with grooming and showering and everything in between, began after World War I. Before that, you know, people groomed themselves a little bit, but... To be honest, people weren't bathing every day and they weren't wearing deodorant and they weren't getting mouthwash and putting on mascara and all of these other things. After that war, the U.S. became both the biggest producer and consumer of beauty and grooming products in the world. During the war, the military had imposed strict hygiene codes as a way to prevent disease from spreading among the troops. Because guess what? A lot of these soldiers, they didn't brush their teeth every day. They didn't bathe very often. They weren't washing their hair. The military was like, hey, guys, y'all are gross and you're spreading illness to one another. I mean, because they weren't even like washing their hands. Anyway, when the soldiers returned home, they brought these ingrained habits of washing, shaving and toothbrushing with them. In the 1920s, Lever, which later became personal care mega corporation Unilever, I know you know that name, Lever ran the first series of ads suggesting that body odor could hurt one's chances both socially and professionally. So guess what? Deodorant became a necessity, something you would find in most households. It wasn't before then. At the same time, another thing was happening, and that was the rise of Hollywood. And suddenly, American women found themselves filled with this desire to buy tons of makeup and skin creams so they could get that movie star look. Yes, the first influencers, perhaps? I don't know. During World War II, because you know we love a war here in the United States, the U.S. government went as far as declaring lipstick a wartime necessity. They said it was a critical component of cultural life, and it was morale building for men and women alike. So if you wanted to be a good American, which you kind of had no choice, you had to go out there and be a good American. If you're a woman, you better go get that red lipstick right now. I don't know if blue and black were on the scene yet, but I love the idea of all these goth women walking around in black lipstick as their patriotic duty. Anyway, I digress. These two wars represented a sea change in terms of how Americans and then really the entire world began to look at personal care and grooming and makeup and hair care, all of these things. At the same time, We've talked about this many times here on the pod. That mid-century post-World War II era is when everybody began to live in a world that was driven by consumerism. You know, companies were popping up everywhere, just churning out new products all the time. So many new companies, so many new ways to spend money. And of course, grooming, hair care, 
makeup, all of that was a big part of this. The personal care industry just grew and grew and grew, like so many other industries. For example, in 1919, it was a $60 million industry in the U.S., which $60 million is a lot of money, and I would sure love someone to hand that to me right now. But for like an industry in the United States, that's pretty small. By 1938, it was $400 million. And yes, there were changes to cost of living, but this is just like exponential growth on top of that. By the 1970s, it was in the billions. And now, as I mentioned at the top of this, it's $500 billion. Personal care is actually one of the biggest industries in the United States, rivaling the pet sports and personal loan industries in terms of sheer volume and revenue every year. Even the pet industry, guys. I don't know about you, but I think in my house we're spending way more money on cat food and all the cat accoutrement than we are on hair care and whatnot. Let me tell you. (laughs) Okay, so we've got this huge growth in the personal care industry, and now it's massive, right? But what does that have to do with plastics? Well, much as our desire to buy just about everything blew up after World War II in the mid-20th century, plastics also began to boom. A lot of plastics were actually developed for wartime use. After the war was over, it's like, okay, how can we take all this, you know, research and development that we've invested into creating this miracle material plastic and continue to make money off of it? Well, we'll come up with new ways to sell plastic to the American consumer and the consumers of the world, right? Personal care brands jumped on the bandwagon, that plastic bandwagon, which sounds pretty rickety to me, actually, because plastic could be molded into any shape. You you want your lotion to look like an apple? We've got it, you know? You want a pump on it that dispenses it? We're going to make that for you. you. I mean, gosh, plastic can take any form, right? Do you want it in a tube? We can do it. You want it in a bottle? Sure, no problem. Little tiny pots, a compact shape like a seashell. Plastic will do it for you. And it's funny to think of it this way, because we now know that plastics are just a dumpster fire. I sometimes literally, but also just a figurative dumpster fire on top of all that. But man, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, and probably the 80s, I'm thinking about all those McDonald's Happy Meal toys, people were like, holy shit, plastic is a miracle because you can do anything with it and you can realize any vision you have for a product with plastic. You couldn't do that with glass or metal or wood, right? On top of that, plastic was and is super cheap and it's so much lighter to ship and when you're shipping billions of units all over the world you want to save on shipping costs by using the lightest packaging available and plastic is there for you furthermore it doesn't break so there are less damages which also you know for any company is going to eat in to their profits if they're damaging out a lot of product regularly because it's being broken in transit Furthermore, 
the opaqueness of plastic bottles in comparison to, say, glass, would shield the contents from the sun and the light, extending the shelf life of a product. All in all, plastic was a hot deal for the industry, and the shift to plastic just raised profit margins and allowed the industry to flourish. And if I haven't mentioned it before, profit margin is the name of the game in all industries, but in personal care, it's super important. Even making a few extra cents off of every unit you sell is a massive game changer if you sell, say, toothpaste. There's a ceiling on how much toothpaste a company can sell in a year. We don't tend to hoard toothpaste or collect toothpaste in the way we might even hoard or collect skincare or eyeshadows, right? We kind of buy what we need and that's that. And maybe Maybe we have an extra tube in the cabinet, but we're not out there being like, look at my collection of all these different brands of toothpaste. Although if you are, I want to hear about it and I, I want to see some pictures. There's just only so much toothpaste you can sell every year. Unfortunately, most industries, including the personal care industry, rely on growth year over year over year. And if you can't really have higher sales because, you, because you've kind of maxed out the amount of toothpaste you can sell, well, you're going to look for other ways to make shareholders happy. And that's by making that toothpaste more profitably, right? Just making a few extra cents, even one cent off of every tube. You'll look for cheaper factories, cheaper ingredients. Maybe you'll switch up the formulation to make it require less ingredients or make it work the same way with cheaper ingredients. And you'll try to save as much money as possible on that packaging. And since even recycled packaging is more expensive than brand new packaging, and yeah, that fact makes me so angry every time I have to think about it or say it out loud. But since new plastic is cheaper, you're going to stick with that new plastic packaging so that you can save every cent you can. The amount of plastic packaging used in products, not even just on personal care items, but just in general, has increased by over 120 times since 1960, with almost 70% of that waste piling up in landfills. I'm just going to reiterate this fact again. The beauty and personal care industry is spending $25 billion each year on plastic packaging. Just so much plastic being made and trashed. Of course, much like the fast fashion industry, the personal care industry knows that customers are, you know, we're getting smarter every day. We're more educated about plastic and its impact on the planet. So some of these companies knowing that, you know, they're probably also jumping on that like, oh, sustainability is trendy bandwagon. Regardless, some of them are making some steps toward better packaging solutions, but it's not easy for them and and I like I can say that like being just like sort of you know even keeled, you know, like thinking about the whole picture here. I can see how it's really difficult for the industry. I'm going to walk you through that. I'm also going to say that with a caveat that the big brands aren't trying hard enough anyway. So th there are a lot of issues here, but there are obstacles to better packaging. As I mentioned, plastic is lightweight and super cheap to ship. 
shifting into all glass packaging, which is where my mind would go, but I guess we could also try aluminum. Any of that packaging is going to make products heavier. If you're just shipping one or two or 20 or 100 things, that would add up. But I want you to think about millions or billions of units shipping all over the world. Not only is that going to be a lot more expensive, I'm not over here like crying a river for Unilever or anything, it also uses more energy to transport these heavier products. And therefore, it would increase the carbon footprint of all those products. It would use a lot more fossil fuels. I mean, just it's just not an easy solution at the scale in which this industry operates right now. Furthermore, stuff is more likely to be broken in transit when it's packaged in glass, not so much in aluminum. So maybe aluminum is an option that these brands need to consider a little bit more heavily. I don't know. There's, there's no easy solution here. Anyway, think about the way we buy and receive products these days. You either order it online or you buy it in store, right? If we order online, the products we buy are often shipped from the factory to the retailer's warehouse where they're unpacked and put away. Next, they're picked, packed, and shipped out to us and then ultimately delivered. I don't know why I spelled that all out for you. You all know that, but just in case you didn't, I hope you pictured that process. That's a lot of time being moved around, stacked in boxes, tossed here and there. And so there's a good chance anything packaged in glass could be broken in that process. Things packaged in cardboard could be damaged and leak. You know, it, it's it's the plastic that allows us to live this internet lifestyle, basically. At the very least, if you were going to ship in glass or cardboard packaging for all these beauty products, it would require more packaging around the products themselves to protect them. Most likely, I mean, let's be honest here, it would be those plastic air pillows. So not really a win there, right? Like we're still creating a lot of plastic waste in our attempt to skip the plastic waste. So that's one example. If we actually buy our products IRL, like at a store, those items still go on a journey from factory to warehouse or distribution center to store. And there are so many points along the way where they could be damaged as well. So glass is tough for the industry. We get it, right? Well, what about recycled plastic? It's so light. It should be pretty cheap, right? Well, it seems like a pretty easy solution, except like a lot of things we discuss around here, it's not an easy solution because for one, plastic can only be recycled once, maybe twice, maybe no times at all, depending on the kind of plastic it is. The plastic fibers that make up your shampoo bottle n lose their integrity after being recycled. They just sort of start to collapse on themselves. So stupid, right? It's truly disturbing to think about how stupid plastic is. I'm saying that plastic is stupid at the end of the day, because it can only be recycled once at best, yet it lives in our landfills for centuries. Plastic, you are stupid. <laughs> I'm just saying it. I googled, do the inventors of plastic have regrets? And I'm so disappointed to say that I found nothing. I have no, I could find no juicy quote of so, some scientist from the mid-century, maybe like a DuPont scientist saying, wow, plastic sure is stupid and I regret it. But 
surely if those scientists are alive right now, they are saying it to themselves at least once a week, I would, I would hope. Anyway, we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place here, or at least the industry is stuck. And to be fair, I have seen some progress in the past year that makes me feel like maybe we're going to see a larger change in packaging. I've seen more bar shampoos and conditioners on the market and in more places, whether it's like a Walmart or a Target or CVS. And this is great because previously, those kind of items lived at like your fancy hippie store or Lush or somewhere that most people didn't shop or have access to. So that's that's amazing, right? I've seen plastic-free deodorant at Target. In fact, a pretty wide range from, you know, the essential oil hippie variety to like straight up antiperspirant all in cardboard tubes. And that seems like a big win to me. I've seen mouthwash in recyclable aluminum bottles and like literally like scope, like big mass-produced brands. There's zero waste toothpaste options all over the internet right now. We're, we're getting there, right? But the beauty industry, specifically skincare is, and cosmetics, remains just completely static when it comes to this kind of larger change. Most are continuing to offer a wide array of elaborate plastic vessels filled with a tiny bit of product. And that is frustrating, to say the least. However... There is one simple trick. Remember, I know I've brought this up here before. In the early days of Facebook, all of those weird ads you would get on the side that were like, Obama says single moms can go to college. And one simple trick to get a flat belly. Do you remember all those? My, I feel like Facebook has really forgotten its heritage. Anyway, (laughs) I have one simple trick that will make an impact on the volume of plastic waste this industry is creating, and it could also force their hand into finding better options. Are you ready for it? It's not spending lots of money on fancy brands. In fact, this trick will actually cost you less money than you're spending right now. Dun-da-da-da! It's buying less of this stuff to begin with. Because I will reckon that a lot of you have been known to pick up a little lip balm or a hand lotion or a new conditioner, eyeshadow, nail polish, lipstick, whatever, as a cheap little thrill when you're having a bad day. Or raise your hand if you've inadvertently washed your lip balm with a load of laundry and needed another one. Or now raise your hand if you have some products in your bathroom right now that you used once or twice and are just They're just collecting dust in there. I've told you about the mason jar of lip glosses. I'll be haunted by that my whole life. They were all bought over a period of about a year, late at night at Walgreens when Revlon was on BOGO. I barely wore any of them, if even at all. And I I think that we all have... I don't know, we've we've gotten accustomed to this idea of treat yourself, get these simple little luxuries, a little lipstick, a little hand lotion here and there to, you know, liven up life, right? I talked about that in the last episode. I think a lot about growing up in my house, you know, we, we were poor. We certainly couldn't afford to go to Disney World or a family vacation at all or anything like that. And, you know, when you have less... 
when you have less luxuries like vacations and barbecues and I don't know, massages and manicures and things like that. Like I, I think I'm pretty probably the first woman in my family to get a manicure. I mean, this is the environment I grew up in, right? All humans want that little treat, that one thing that you do that makes you feel excited or special, like you're taking care of yourself. And for my mom, that was buying new shampoo and conditioner. And what happened is at any given moment, I totally took this for granted, just was used to living in this situation until I was an adult and I realized I only ever had one shampoo and conditioner in my shower. We would have 10, 20 bottles at any given moment of different shampoos and conditioners. I don't even know if my ever any bottle ever got finished. It must have. But for my mom, buying that 99-cent bottle of Suave in a new fragrance or some white rain or maybe splurging on salon selectives, like that made her feel good and special and like a nice treat. But then it also created this mountain of conditioner and shampoo bottles in her rearview mirror, you know, just like piling up behind her. And later, as we rolled into this century, my mom still continued to buy all that shampoo and conditioner all the time, but also then threw uh, shower gel into the mix <laughs> and body wash, you know. And so the shower and the tub were just filled with bottles. Like there were organizers there with all these bottles and then there'd be more under the sink that perhaps at some point had been shifted over there as they were less desirable, but never thrown away, just collecting dust. And that's maybe an extreme version of what some of us do, but like, I'm going to tell you, I have bought nail polish and used it once. I have bought lip gloss and used it never. I have bought Weird eyeliners that I knew I was never going to wear, but the idea of possibly wearing a grass green eyeliner filled me with excitement and optimism, and it allowed me to picture some night where I was out looking fabulous and my whole life would change. And there's so much psychology wrapped up in why we buy these things, and it's time for us to start unpacking that, you know? Listen, guilt is not the way forward. And I will say that in every episode because I truly believe that if you find yourself incredibly motivated by guilt, fine, lean into it, go for it. But for the rest of us, it's not about guilt. It's about gathering the knowledge, digesting it, and then making changes going forward, right? Here's the thing. There is major money to be made in the realm of personal care and beauty, and companies are ready to cash in. Like I mentioned in the last episode, even all the fast fashion companies are like, we make makeup now too, or perfume, or whatever. And some of these stores have entire makeup departments within their clothing store. This is an industry that relies on selling you as much stuff as possible, as often as possible, Beauty, personal care, skin care, hair care, it's just like fast fashion, right? It feeds on our insecurities and our desire to dream of a better future. And it does that by bombarding us with new product all the time. You have to sell people a hell of a lot of eyeshadow to make a million dollars in profit. You need to sell even more eyeshadow to make a billion dollars in profit. And by God, these companies are gonna do that. You know, they're gonna try their hardest to sell you as much stuff as possible, as often as possible. Quantity 
is the key here. And so cosmetic companies are launching new products, collections, collabs weekly. Don't even get me started on blogs and magazines and influencers and Instagram ads and all the ways in which we are reminded every day that we need this or that to have a better life, to fit in, to be pretty, to be popular, to be appealing to the sort of people we want to be appealing to. In general, only the smaller companies are taking big steps to use less packaging and have more ethical supply chains. The bigger companies, they're just dragging their heels and using recycled plastic and calling it a day and hoping that if they throw natural on the bottle that you're going to feel good about continuing to buy as much stuff as possible. The level of greenwashing in the personal care industry never ceases to excite me with rage. (laughs) And it doesn't get called out in the same way that the fast fashion industry does. And when you think about how many people are out there shopping from Shein or Forever 21 or Zara right now who don't know any of the stuff that you know from listening to Clothes Horse or following certain accounts on Instagram or talking to your friends, think about all those people who don't know that. I'm going to tell you that the group of people who don't know about all of the greenwashing and waste associated with personal care is a much, much larger group. Progress has been so slow in this industry, and I think it's because so few of people know about the issues here. That's why it's up to us to buy less and, you know, of course, to get everybody around us to buy less. You, yes, you get to decide what is essential to you in terms of personal care products. It's a personal choice. (laughs) That can range from mascara to perfume to hair mousse to hair removal. You decide because it's your choice. There's no right or wrong answer here and no one gets to tell you what you do not need. I suggest taking an inventory of the products you own. Go in the bathroom, turn on the light, and take a good hard look at what's there. Divide it into groups, things you use regularly, things you use on special occasions, and things you used once or twice and kind of forgot about. Do some analysis of the items in that final group. Why did you buy them? Why didn't they work? Recognize that while these items feel like temporary parts of your life, they will be sticking around somewhere in the world for a very long time, long after the product inside that packaging is usable. Break the habit. Break the habit of buying these little things just to feel a little bit better. It's the same thing with clothing, right? We're all working our way through it. We're all in different places in our journey, but what matters is that we're all on the journey, right? It's hard, but it will save you money. It'll save you space. It'll save you having to move this stuff around. I mean, there are so many wins that it's hard to argue against cutting out those impulse beauty purchases. Now look at the products in that first group, things you use regularly, Do the brands that make these products offer a refillable or less packaging version? If they don't, tell them that you want one or try a more refillable option. I highly recommend doing a Google search for refilleries in your area because these have been popping up all over the place. 
And they often specialize in toiletries and cleaning products because it's a lot harder to sell zero-waste food, way more regulations around it, than there is to sell you zero-waste shower gel or like floor washing detergent. Floor washing detergent? I'm acting like I've never washed a floor before. I promise I have. Why did I call it that? I don't know. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) Big companies, like I mentioned, are still in the early stages of figuring out more refillable options. Uh, They're just not getting there. It's too complicated, especially on the scale that they sell on. So you're often going to find smaller indie brands in these refilleries who often tend to be small businesses too. So your spending will also have a more local and immediate impact. That's just an added bonus, right? Next, we're going back to that that group of products that you know you want, they're your ride or die, you use them every day. How do you feel about the ethics and sustainability of the brands that make those products? Could they do better? Demand it because they want your money. They need your money. These brands have been engaging in wasteful and unethical practices under the radar for a long time. These supply chains for most of these beauty, cosmetic, personal care brands are just as troubling and just as unethical as any of the fast fashion brands. It's time for them to make a change. And it's time for us to speak up about it because like I said, most people don't know about this. Beth Terry is a longtime plastic waste activist. She wrote this book called My Plastic Free Life, which might sound familiar to you. And she also has a blog by the same name. And she sets an amazing example for reaching out to companies about plastic waste and their products. Every time she finds some like plastic wasteful element in a product she buys that she just can't avoid, she reaches out to the company that makes it and she encourages her audience, the people who read her book, who follow her blog, she encourages them to reach out as well. And you know what? It it works. It's thanks to Beth that people can now recycle Brita water filters. Before Beth and her community pressured the company to change this, Brita water filters could only go to the landfill, which is so gross because they're pretty big. I don't even want to think about how many of those are in landfills right now. Beth Terry isn't a billionaire or a politician. She just, with the help of her community, made a really impactful change there. And we can do the same with all of these personal care products because we are the customer and these companies want our money so badly. That industry is so competitive. They need to sell us all the toothpaste they can. They cannot afford to lose us and they will bend to our will when we're buying less and giving them a hard time about it. Also, those products that you love, that last group again, Make them last longer by storing them properly, close those containers tightly, keep them out of the sun, keep them cool. I'm not saying don't go buy one of those makeup refrigerators that were a thing like a year or two ago. Please don't do that. Oh, so wasteful. Lastly, use every last drop. Hi, everyone. My name is Amanda McCarty, and I cut open the tube of everything to get every last drop out. I am a depression nana. We told you that. I've been known to take open the bottle and take like a reusable like metal straw and kind of scrape it to get every last drop out. That's me. You know what? I grew up this way. In the rare 
event that my mom did finish a bottle of shampoo or conditioner because she really, really loved it, we we would add water to get every last drop out. <laughs> oh, man, I haven't done that for so long. That really takes me back. Anyway, the way it would just run everywhere and you were like, I don't even know if I have any shampoo in my hand to put in my hair. Oh, the memories. It's even weirder with conditioner because it gets all chunky. Anyway, I want to remind you all, whether you're watering down your shampoo or not, that it's progress, not perfection. No one is expecting you to make an instant overhaul to your routine. And no one expects you to give up makeup or hair dye or a nice deep conditioner. Because you know what? These products, these things, they make us feel better. And maybe some people can break up with makeup or hair products and feel their best, but others can't. And I'm recording this right now while I'm definitely wearing mascara because I have blonde eyelashes and I'm not quitting mascara. I'm just making it last and I'm trying out a bunch of zero waste products. So far it hasn't been great, but I haven't wasted any and I've used them to the end. So if you have a zero waste mascara suggestion, send it my way. Like I said, no luck so far. Some of it was flaking into my eyes, messed up my contacts. It was terrible. Anyway, I'm, d- I'm doing what I can. And you know what? I might be clinging to my mascara to the bitter end, but I've also cut out products that I wasn't really using or I didn't need from foundation to shaving cream, nail polish, subscription sample boxes. All of that is out of my life. It feels great. I'm not drowning in samples anymore. I don't feel like I'm lacking for anything. If anything, I, I feel happier. It's funny how these little things that we think bring us happiness actually bring us more happiness when they're not around sometimes. A more sustainable life isn't supposed to make you feel insecure or not put together or just bad in general. In fact, I'm going to need all of you to feel your best so you can get out there and get more people involved in this movement. So don't give up your mascara if that's your thing. Just be mindful of your consumption and curb impulse purchases. It's just like with clothing. No one's expecting you to go around nude. We just want you to buy less and take care of what you have. Share the progress you make in this area with those around you because you are an influencer and your decisions, your best practices, your new discoveries, they have major impact on the choices made by the people in your life. I promise that. Okay, well, after all of that, quite an intro to this segment. (laughs) Let's get back into my conversation with Susan about her days working at the Clinique counter. Why did you finally leave leave the Clinique counter? Um, The pay was horrible. Uh, I was not. I was not treated very well. Sales were going way down. I'd been there for almost ten years, and I'd been trying to get other jobs for years. And then I I had gotten another part time job that. you know, eventually I was able to make into a little more of a full-time gig and, uh, you know, was making more money at that. So I just, you know, it was like, I'd been trying to get out of there for so long. And finally I was just like, you know what, I'm done. I, I can't be on my feet for eight hours a day and, 
you know, no one listens to me. And, um, you know, there was always the back and forth between the store management and the, um, you know, the account executive. And it was just, and it was, it got to be very monotonous, you know. Um, Another thing that we didn't address is discontinued products. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about, were there a lot of discontinued products at Clinique? Because I, I think of them as a, place that kind of carries the same stuff all the time. Yeah, there are the classics, definitely. And then like the three-step skincare is sort of the backbone of the whole line. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are definitely like things that they, they've they had, for, you know, like the black honey and, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. But they what they would do a lot of times is discontinue like certain colors and then they would discontinue like the whole line of this or that. And they would come out with something new. And it was crazy to see how many, it it was usually a lot of older women that would just throw a fit because their favorite blush was discontinued. You know, their favorite eyeliner wasn't going to be made anymore. (laughs) And with my regular customers, if I knew something was on the discontinued list, but I had like, let's say six, you know, um, Moss eyeliner, for example, quick liner. That was one of the ones that I remember when that was discontinued. And yeah, I would get bummed out. But um, mm-hmm. I remember telling this woman, she's like, oh, I, I just need my Moss eyeliner. And I says, okay, great. And um, I said, you know, it's it's been discontinued. So once we run out, it's gone. And then she's like, oh, no. Oh, my gosh. She was actually really sweet about it. And I said, I've got six in stock right now or whatever it was. I said, do you want to pick up two today? And she's like, "Mm, no. (laughs) Cool. You know, after the, well, I don't know what I'm going to do once this is gone. It's like, well, why don't you, you know, it's okay to hoard a little bit, you know, in a a situation like this. But um, (laughs) one of my colleagues at another one of the stores had this woman come in and throw a fit because her eyeshadow had been discontinued and um she was like i just can't rely on anything anymore i guess and you know this is ridiculous and i've been using this for you know 15 years and blah 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 and my colleague just looked at her and said i'm sorry but it's just an eyeshadow you know (laughs) and this was after she said let me help you pick another similar color and i can let you know what we recommend and you know she's just blowing a gasket over it it's like lady can you get a grip of (laughs) yeah geez yeah yeah i mean that i i think the moral of the story is that no matter what you are doing in retail the customers are really hard. So a lot of them are. Yeah. I mean, it just, I obviously have not had to sell makeup, but man, I mean, someone once hit me in the face with a package of curtains and cut my face. Oh my God. You know, because I would, because they wouldn't honor the, like they misread a sign, you know, it was like a sign for like these, I don't know, pillowcases are on sale, but they were like, well, I don't care. It was near the curtains. Oh my God. You know, like that kind of thing. And, you know, my manager was like, just give them the discount. So they basically got a reward for Ugh. hitting me. Um, and that's just like such a classic retail story. Yeah, I'm sure definitely. everybody who's listening to this is like, oh, yeah, totally. I hear that one. Um, well, I guess, you know, we're coming down the home stretch here. And I would just love to know, like, how do you think the makeup industry could be better? 
I know that's like a massive question, <laughs> but like it's wasteful, yes. right? And it, uh, especially now, it seems to sell a lot of people things they might not need. Yeah, definitely. Um, also, like I just thought of something that we didn't touch on, and I um, is free samples, not the gift with purchase, oh, yeah, but okay. free samples. That's a great one. So free samples are really interesting to me because I am the kind of person who would literally never go ask for a sample. Me neither. You know, I, right? And I feel like we get so many samples if you order from Sephora or Ulta, like they're constantly in the package. But I would never go to a counter at a department store and be like, can I get some of this lotion? But you were telling me before that – People are like, give me all the free samples, which doesn't surprise me. Well, and I know Clinique used to do a lot and, you know, all the Estee Lauder brands, I think they would do more free samples like in the, you know, 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s um, as a way of enticing people, you know, to try something out. But during my time working um, at the counter from 2007 to the beginning of 2017, they had really moved away from just, you know, free samples for the heck of it. Um, there were the gift with purchases twice a year, which was great. Um, and then, uh, sometimes if we got a new product in, there might be free samples, but it was usually kind of conditional. Like, Oh, if you bought, you know, if you bought a moisturizer, any moisturizer, then we'll give you a free sample of this serum, which is brand new. So it was like mm-hmm. a way of like pairing things. Like if you're using this, try this, you know, it right. wasn't just right. like, oh, hey, lady, here, take a sample of the serum, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it made sense to me that they were like a little more judicious with the free samples, um, especially after 2008, after the crash. Um, right. So, and people would just walk up to the counter. Can I get a sample? Do you have any samples? No intention of buying anything. Why don't you have any samples? Because we don't have any samples, you know? And like I say, I would make samples for people that were coming in and asking questions and trying things out, you know, because I, like, I knew like, if you can try something like, especially a skincare product, you know, if you can try it for a few days. So I was always like trying to like, you know, kind of do my own little free sample incentive, but people really had an attitude about, you know, why don't you have any samples? I'm, I'm spending money. And it's like, one time I told this older woman who, um, was always really mean and nasty about it. And she was like, I'm spending a lot of money. I'm entitled to a sample. Like the, she actually <laughs> used the word entitled. And I, I remember I told her once, I said, you know, I went to Trader Joe's last night and I bought probably $80 worth of groceries. And I didn't say to the cashier, give me a free bag of chips. I'm spending all this money. <laughs> Although I like, I like this idea. <laughs> I mean, I to be fair, I have a friend whose wife I used to work at Trader Joe's, and she worked at the back where they hand out the samples. You know, there's like always coffee and a couple other things. Yeah, and she was like, she was like, yeah, it's literally the worst job in the store. Oh my god, because people will hang out there all day trying to get as many samples as they want. These aren't people who are like you know food insecure. These are people who just like want free stuff yeah. and they will be like are you going to make some more samples soon you're running low oh my gosh and she was like they practically put on disguises to come back around Ugh. like it's just so ridiculous and i was like man i 
I feel this. Like, I like the lady that came in, feeling. you know, and lied to me about, you know, coming in to get her fourth gift or whatever it was. Oh, no, I've never been. Like, <sighs> yeah. Come on. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, people would really get, you know, pissy about the same. And I'm, I feel like with the gift with purchase and then the samples, like the frequent samples that they used to, you know, counters used to do back in the day, they kind of, they really created a monster with that because people just expect to get something for free. And it's like, most of the time you're coming in to buy stuff and you get what you buy. And that's that, you know, whether you're at the clinic counter or Trader Joe's or the hardware store, you know, wherever it is you go. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I just don't have it in me to walk up to, a counter and say, got any samples? Like, I just, I don't, I remember talking to my mom about that and she was like, well, that's just tacky. It is just tacky. I mean, it's like, I feel like in 2021, like we have like an excess of samples. Like if you buy makeup anywhere, they're like hitting you with samples constantly. Or like, I don't know if you remember like Birchbox or like there's Ipsy where you literally just get samples in the mail. Or I like to call it bitch box. I remember when Birchbox first launched, I was like, oh my God, I love getting stuff in the mail. I love trying new makeup. Like, what could go wrong here? Right. You know, and I signed up and for like a year or two, I really enjoyed it. And I actually like, there are a few things that I found during that period that I still use. Like I continue to rebuy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then suddenly it just turned out that like, okay, now I have a whole little box in the bathroom of all these samples I haven't used. Now I have two boxes. Now I'm like giving a hundred samples at a time to Dylan. Like it yeah. was just piling up. And I was like, I don't, I don't need all these samples anymore. You know, and I would think about all the plastic and just like the shipping to get it to me. And I there's like too many samples these days that aren't intentional. Like I guess I would rather go to a counter and have the person working there say like, I think you should try this. Mm-hmm. And it was like, an, you know, it was a meaningful, intentional decision rather than Sephora be like, here's three random things you didn't ask for and right. probably won't like. Right. And one of them is a fragrance that you would literally never wear. Yeah, you're going to sneeze you know? your head off. When- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I could get rid of fragrance samples from the earth, I would feel vindicated. Yeah. I feel like I'd really done something with my life. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. And well, and I remember um, there was one woman during the gift with purchase and she was saying, as I was ringing her up, she was like, oh, I, you know, I've got, I don't know why I keep coming in here for these. I get so excited about the gift, but I don't really use them. You know, I might use like two things out of the seven or whatever. And she says, I don't know what to do with all my stuff, it's just piling up in my, my linen closet. And I told her, um, I said, you know, I'm glad you, you brought that up to me. I said, because, um, if you know of like a homeless shelter or a women's shelter, I said, call them up and let them know that you want to bring stuff by. And I said, take what you don't want and, and donate it because I said, they absolutely love getting, you know, these, these, um, sample sizes of cosmetics and skincare products. And I said, it could really make a difference for someone who's uh, housing insecure. And she just looked at me. Once again, this is in Berkeley where everybody is so supposedly, you know, so socially conscious. She looked at me and she goes, I am not going to do that. And I just thought, okay, then 
you can let it pile up in your bathroom, I guess. I don't, I don't, I was just like kind of floored by that. Like, oh, here's a good example of something you could do with the stuff you're not using, you know, but, but you don't want to do, yeah. Like what the hell? I actually, um, donate my unused samples, um, to the St. James Infirmary in San Francisco, which is an occupational health clinic for sex workers. And, um, you know, so in addition to, you know, sex workers that might be housing insecure, um, there are also a lot of, uh, trans folks, you know, in the business that, Mm -hmm. that go there. And so getting some, you know, for someone who's a trans woman, doing sex work, like getting skincare and makeup samples, you know, that they, they, you know, or gifts that they don't have to pay for, you know, sometimes you get full size stuff in like full size lipsticks or whatever, you know, that makes a big difference to someone. And, um, and then my friend, um, a good friend of mine, she gets all the, you know, she loves makeup. So she gets all the, the boxes like uh birch box and Ipsy and, and a few others. Mm-hmm. And, so to a couple of her friends, so sh- they pool all their stuff and then I take it to St. James. So I love that. Yeah. So if you have any listeners, if you've got any um, Ipsy goods or Clinique or whatever piled up and, you know, that you're not going to use, ask around, you know, and see what's available in your community in terms of shelters, because, um, you know, having some nice makeup can really brighten a person's day when, you know, especially if you're struggling, I think, you know, we all, those of us that like to use makeup, we all do, I think, have that sense of like, "Ah, I'm going to put on a lipstick so I feel a little better, you know, and it, it does make a difference. So I like, I like to do that, you know, with my unused stuff. Um, really quick. I, I know I told you this story before, but my, I remember my account executive in regards to waste, we had this big 3.4 ounce bottle of happy and bloom, which was seasonal and the bottle would be different every year. It would have a different design, you know, on it. So ridiculous. Uh, I know. And they were all really pretty. You know, and that was the right. selling point was like, this is going to look so beautiful sitting on your dresser. <laughs> but um, I had this, you know, tester bottle of Happy and Bloom. And I said, you know, we've gotten the new ones in for this year. This is last year's. It's like three quarters of the way full. I said, can I just set it out on the sidewalk for an unhoused person? Because, you know, they might like a perfume, you know, to stumble upon a perfume. And I, you know, I wish I could have just been more civilized about it. And she's like, no, because they might return it. And I said, well, it's got, I put stickers all over it that say, you know, Sam, uh, tester, not for resale. And she, you know, and it, if it was part of a gift, it would say not for individual resale. So you would know like not to take it back. She was like, no, just take it and throw it against a brick wall. I have so many feelings about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure you're not just supposed to be throwing happy around outside for one. Broken glass, waste, it's also upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember you telling your story about, you know, um, people working at minimum wage retail jobs and being told to damage stuff out, take it out back and smack it with a sledgehammer. Like what the heck? Well, it's you it's know, not just slap in the face. You're like, you barely pay yeah. me. I'm supposed to destroy things I can't even afford. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I, you know, 
I did not do what I was told to do. I went and did the dead opposite and I took it outside and very casually set it down and, you know, someone took it. Now, whether it was an unhoused person or a student or whoever, somebody took it that was going to use it. And they were happy. And that's great. Yeah. I mean, definitely like with, you know, all the different things that we've talked about, like there was, there was a lot of, all of that kind of led to me not wanting to work there anymore, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. I mean, that's, that's a lot. And I think that's, you know, that's like all retail jobs at this point are full of all of these really demoralizing things that you have to do that don't align with your values, that feel wasteful, that feel wrong. And then on top of that, you don't get paid shit. So why should you have that job? Right, exactly. Like I've been thinking a lot and reading a lot lately about, you know, like in August, more than 4 million Americans quit their jobs. Just quit. Yeah. Which... We've all we've all had that job that we fantasize about quitting, right? And I know that tons of people don't have the privilege of being able to quit their job. It's like this or nothing, right? Right, exactly. And that's why I hung on there for so long. Totally. Was, and I, I talked about that in the article. Like I would also like when you work retail, if you are trying to get out of retail, um, people tend to think that you're just you're not capable of anything else. Meanwhile, you're doing retail math. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, usually almost every job I've worked at retail has um, has involved some type of visual merchandising. It's customer service. It's you know, um, okay. I'm drawing a blank here, but you know, so many other skills, so many skill sets that you can apply to other fields. You know, but people don't recognize that. And I, I don't know why. I feel like that's something that's really got to change. Agreed. I hate – I mean, I, I see this all over the internet, like that people who work retail or food service are unskilled, that they don't deserve to be paid more because it's like an easy, unskilled job. And that's just fundamentally no, untrue. I know. I know. I mean, even, you know, I began my career in fashion actually working retail and I was recruited – to, to be a buyer. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that company had done that in 10 years because their feeling was that the people who worked in the store were just like not that smart, not that hardworking, definitely didn't have talents that were transferable to other sections of the company. And, you know, I proved them wrong, but I could feel, and I can see this in retrospect, that people were skeptical that I was able to do this job. And all I can think is like, the people I worked with in the stores were actually some of the smartest, coolest, most interesting yeah. creative people that I've worked with in my entire career. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, so resourceful, hardworking, funny, just mm-hmm. like able to make things happen under the worst circumstances. Yeah. You know? And just like really great at working as a team and thinking about one another. I always felt like it was like us against the world. And you know what? Oh, yeah. I don't have – I haven't had that feeling in other jobs since then. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my mom, you know, my mom waited tables for years. And she talked about how, um, you know, she eventually ended up – working as a bank teller and then getting, you know, getting promoted to doing like executive level admin for the bank. And that was um, what she retired from. And she talks about that all the time, like how, you know, if she hadn't have had those, those years of 
waiting tables and like really honing her customer service skills and also like, you know, learning how to hustle around a restaurant and everything else. And, you know, um, she said, you know, she would not have done as well at the bank, you know, because like those skills are, you know, they you carry them over, Mm -hmm, you know, and it, it might not look like that on the surface, but you really do. And she, you know, she said that like one of her bosses was like, God, you are so great at, you know, always keeping everything going. Everything is flowing. And when, when things get knocked off kilter, you're so good at staying calm, you know? And she's like, well, I've worked in restaurants for years and I raised a child and, you know, (laughs) you know, like I know how to, yeah. I mean, I know how to stay calm in a crisis and, and not, you know, whereas like some of these like, you know, Ivy League educated white guys that she worked for that were her bosses. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. And she's like, well, sit down and let me figure this out. And, you know, <laughs> totally. and, you know, when you deal with things like, you know, unruly customers or like big, huge rushes and things like that, you learn how to just kind of like keep going, you know, like, oh, you ran out of register tape. Well, just, you know, let's not panic. Let's get this going. And, and okay, we're fine. You know, that took two seconds. And I think, you know, uh, yeah, people, whatever it is, you know, and I think, um, and you've had a lot of guests and you've talked to yourself about all the things that are behind the scenes in retail that people don't think about, like writing orders and, you know, like visual merchandising and all of that. Um, and I, I know Katie, um, who worked at, oh God, what was it? H&M for years. Yeah. I love her episode. I just love her. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. And you know, all of the stuff she talked about, like being in management at H&M and how people thought she was just sitting in the office, like twiddling her thumbs and she was, you know, up to her neck and, you know, paperwork and this and that, and, you know, all the stuff that she had to do and, and, you know, I think people just don't, they don't see it. So they don't realize it, you know, it's true. It's true. They haven't done it. You know, I've, yeah. I've heard a lot of like, I will see this occasionally shared on social media where it's like, everyone should have to work retail and food service. So they're yes. not like an asshole. And I yes. fully support that. Yeah. Oh God, me too. <laughs> like, please let's do more of that because I just, I just can't believe, I mean, I, even like last week, fl- I was flying, you know, to Austin, and there was this guy who seriously, he got up every 15 minutes to get another drink from the flight attendants. And he had this oh, like, God. he just had such a sense of entitlement that was really bugging me. And he was just getting all this coffee over and over again. Like he was treating them like his personal weight staff. And like, Flight attendants are putting up with enough shit right now. Yeah, they are. Yeah. That is a tough job. That is a tough job. And I felt really, really annoyed. And it's even, you know, and it's gone from like tough to, you know, damn near impossible with everything that's gone on over the last couple of years. I can't even imagine, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have a friend who's a flight attendant and I. I thought about becoming a flight attendant. Me too. And- <laughs> I always, I mean, like, listen, even when I, I mean, this is preposterous, but when I lost my job at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, well, maybe when the pandemic's over, I'll become a flight attendant. And I've always wanted to try that, you know? Uh, I, I Now that I hear all the stories, I probably don't want to do that. 
Um, well, and they used to have a very strong labor union and the, the women, the women that were, the, there was a book about it and I haven't read it yet, but, um, I, you know, need to add that to my, my list. And then when I find it, I'll, I'll be sure to let you know, but, yeah. um, there was, there was a very strong labor union, um, that was assembled, I want to say in the early seventies. And it was because being a flight attendant became such a chic job for single women, you know, and they had all those, remember they had all those rules like in the sixties, you know, like the height of the uh, swinging stewardess area era where you couldn't, you know, you couldn't be over a certain weight and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't be married. And so it was these, this union organizing that did away with all of that and all of the discrimination, you know, or most of it. And, and then what happened over the years was, you know, the, things changed with the airlines and the unions were broken up. And, you know, so it, it boggles my mind, you know, that here were these women that, that really um, worked so hard, so hard to improve the working conditions, you know, and then that kind of all fell to the wayside. But I just remember when I was like in my, um, early thirties, like not long after I moved out here, I was like, well, maybe I'll become a flight attendant. And I remember talking to my mom about it. And she goes, Susan, you know, they don't wear go-go boots anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And then she was like, that's a tough, tough job. And, And not only that, okay, this, like, I know you'll be able to relate to this, but, um, the two cats that I had at that time, um, Diablo and Francine, like Diablo was a very needy, whiny male cat. And my mom was like, what are you going to do with Diablo? And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I don't have children, but I have cats. And, you know, I can't be gone for days at a time with these kitties, especially Diablo, because he'll lose his little mind, you know, <laughs> if his mother is gone. But uh, but anyway, yeah. Um yeah, I mean, that's that's another customer service job that, you know, is really, really tough. And um, and most people, a lot of people that, that have never done customer service, they tend to not have a very, um, very great opinion of, of flight attendants. They don't realize how hard that job is. No, it's so hard and it's really stressful. And really, flight attendants aren't there to give you drinks and pretzels. They're there to keep you safe. Yeah, yep. It's a lot of responsibility. I think about that all the time. Like when I finally learned that, because I, you know, people would be like, they're waitresses in the sky. And it's like, no, actually, they're there to keep everybody safe and make sure they wear their seatbelts and like be there in case of any sort of accident and make sure people are, you know, sitting upright and stowing their stuff properly. I mean, they keep people from getting hurt. Yes, exactly. Every day. And they have to deal with all kinds of crises and ridiculousness. I Like I've just seen so much unsavory behavior on planes over the years. Oh, God. Like, people taking off their shoes and putting their dirty feet up on the, you know, the armrest in front <laughs> of them. Know. And, you uh, know, just uh, – and now you're seeing people, like, not wearing their masks. And I – you know, my heart goes out to the flight attendants of the world dealing with all the, you know – all that garbage. Agreed. Agreed. I'm really grateful for all of their work. I mean, I'm grateful for everyone who has ever worked in any customer service role because I know how hard it is and how undervalued it is. And it's so essential, you know? So I wish we could have a day. Like I always used to think when I was working retail, how unfair it was that there would be like a service industry night and deals at bars and restaurants and things like that. But there was never a deal for people who worked retail. And 
we're putting up with as much shit and we don't get tips. Like I would like to have retail worker appreciation day where we all like get a cake and flowers. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get that on the calendar. Well, my coworkers gave me flowers on my last day, which I thought was really sweet. I actually took a cake in because as you know, I love to bake. So every year on my birthday, I would, I would bring in like a birthday cake that I would, you know, I would bake myself because, you know, baking brings me a lot of joy. People say, why are you bringing your own cake? And I say, because I, you know, I like to bake and it's fun, you know, and that way we can all enjoy it. So on my last day, I brought in my cake, but my, my coworkers gave me this beautiful floral arrangement. It was so sweet. You know, but it's funny, my account executive, when I put my two weeks notice in, I didn't, I never heard from her. Never heard like, oh, thanks for for 10 years of service, Susan, you know, best of luck, nothing. I didn't hear anything from her. And 10 years is a long time. Yes, it is. Ridiculous. (laughs) I've got the bunions to prove it. Ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And that's the other thing, you know, people working in retail, like I used to get so down in the dumps about being at that, at that counter. Like they didn't, you know, they would get pissy if I went upstairs to use the bathroom and was too many times or whatever, Mm -hmm, you know, the management mm -hmm. would. And, and I, I used to get so depressed and I, I used to call that counter, the clinic counter, I used to call it my veal pen, you know, cause that was what it felt like. Like, I'm just only allowed to be in this tiny little, you know, this little counter, this little walkway, I'm not supposed to move. I'm not, you know, and I'm not supposed to stray away from this area. And it was really, you know, it was really getting to me and it was hurting. It was really hurting my body over time too. I'm sure. You know, I mean, retail workers have, you know, and, and, uh, food service workers too, you know, you have a lot of, you end up, you know, if you do it for a long time, you have a lot of issues with your feet, a lot of issues with your lower back. Um, you know, all of that. And, um, you know, any physical job, you're going to have problems with your body. I mean, I've known people who are electricians and plumbers and whatnot that, you know, end up getting like terrible, you know, having terrible issues with their backs and, and, you know, from crouching down into small spaces. And and when they go, go in for medical care, you know, the, the doctors are like, Oh, are you an electrician? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We need, we need to value these people more. Yeah. But also that's the thing too. Also like people that work in the trades, like they, they're usually paid really well. Exactly. That's the difference. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I mean, I have known people who have been very snooty and have made nasty comments about people that work in, in trades. And it, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, why are you calling an electrician then? If you're so, so doggone smart, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you fixing your own car? Oh, wait, you can't, you know, (laughs) like (laughs) this person is good at this. You're good at other things. You are not better because you have a college degree or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like people in the trades, they they get paid well. They're usually a little afforded a little more respect than you know people ringing up your groceries or ringing up your uh, cosmetics or you know helping you out with that or working at you know whatever retail store. And I just think now about how retail is such a mess. It's like so not a job that anyone wants at this point because. You you read about like, oh, now McDonald's is offering $13 an hour or something, which is, you know, not a living wage anyway. But most retailers aren't getting on board with that even. No. 
And and it's it's hard work. And you're out there with the public. People are being shitty. Like, it's it, why would you want to do it? You know? Yeah. I mean, I remember like all winter long, Dick would insist on keeping the doors open, keeping the double doors open. Oh God. This is like one of my pet peeves. I had the same thing at a job. Yeah. And staff would be getting, you know, especially like he was more on the men's side. We we had like a men's department and then a then um Cal, like UC Berkeley. We had a whole section of um Cal, you know, clothes and hats and, and, you know, coffee mugs, whatever you could imagine. So on the men's and Cal side, he was, that was more his territory. He would keep the double doors open and, and the people that were working the cash register would literally be wearing like their coat, their scarves, their hats and fingerless gloves to ring up customers. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Staff are getting sick and then you don't want them to take time off to stay home and get better. Like, you know, it it that particular store like there were aspects of it where i was like i feel like i'm in a charles dickens novel you know in <laughs> yeah. in modern times you know and it's just and and i feel like that happens i think that that happens a lot in retail jobs where you're not even treated like a person you know yeah it's true it's true you're like i mean and i think unfortunately customers also feel that way oh yeah yeah, and and that was the thing about that particular location was that you had people going to this, you know, very prestigious university who, you know, especially the students that that thought that, you know, they would never have to do a job like that. So, you know, they were they were so much better and smarter and would talk down to the staff and everything. And you know what? I have a college degree and and I worked there for almost 10 years, you know, because things don't always work out the way you, you think that they're going to when you're 18 years old and a freshman at whatever school you're at or what, you know, I mean, life takes turns that you, you could not predict. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why we need to stop being classist jerks. Yes. (laughs) I had um, a regular customer who she didn't work on campus. Uh, Oddly enough, she she worked, she was a representative for a labor union and she would come in and her last name was, her last name was Firestein. And I asked her, I said, Oh my goodness, are you related to Harvey Firestein? You know, who's a playwright and, um, uh, gay icon, you know, and, um, and I've always loved his work. And she said, you know, he's a distant cousin of mine. And I said, Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. And she goes, I'm surprised you even know who Harvey Firestein is. (gasps) rude. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure why you'd be surprised. He's fairly well known. And I, and then I just like, I was so like taken aback. I said, I am queer and I have a degree in women's studies. And she's like, then why are you working here? Wow. <laughs> That's all I can say. And I said, cause this is the job that I have right now. That's why I'm working here. And she's like, oh, well, oh, oh, mm-hmm. okay. And it was just like, you work for a labor union. You should know better than to talk to people like that. You know, you'd think. But yeah, that's obnoxious. Yeah. Well, it was so fun, as always, to talk to you, Susan. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me to chat with you about this. I always feel so good after I write or talk about my time. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's good. That's a clean counter. Like, I feel like I'm getting so much off my chest. And- <laughs> no, I totally feel the same way anytime we talk about retail because I feel like I, I don't know, like I compartmentalized so many bad things I experienced and saw just because I thought we had to accept that kind of stuff. So it always feels good to just talk about it and be like, yeah, that was messed up. Yeah. And I, I love seeing all these workers that are striking right now. It makes me, me so, too. It makes me so proud and so hopeful. And I I'm would love to see retail workers rise up and you know, unionize <sighs> yes. if that's going to work for them, or at least just, st- you know, like when I called OSHA, I was just like, I have got to do something about this. You know, I, I, I really want to see that happen, you know, on a larger scale for all workers everywhere, you know, to be treated fairly and especially retail workers. Cause I feel like, you know, folks in retail just get swept under the rug, you know? Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. Nobody thinks about them. And I think it's because it's such a female workforce. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, one of my colleagues at another counter had told me that, um, you know, Mr. McCullough, the, the, you know, the original founder of the store, he had been really open about that for years. He was like, oh, yeah, I like hiring women because they, you know, they'll just put up with anything and they're, they, they're, they're usually married. So they don't, you know, they don't ask for a lot of money or benefits and, you know, like they just have their husband, they're, they're usually working because they need something to do. And, you know, oh yeah, that's what I want to do with my time is fucking put shirts on, excuse my French, but, you know, put shirts on (laughs) hangers and put them on a rack and deal with you know, crabby customers. <laughs> yeah, what a dream. What I a know. dream. Uh, you know, if I could, I think I'd rather take up needlepoint or <laughs> Brenda has arrived. She's arrived to Aww. Are you ready for dinner, buddy? You were a good girl. You didn't bother me at all. She is a good girl. She's so cute. They all are. All right. Well, I'm gonna go because it's after seven here and I need to feed her and okay. eat some dinner. But um thank you so much. This was so fun. Yes, it was, definitely. Thank you again to Susan for taking a few hours, literally a few hours, to talk to me. It was such a delight. And while I feel like Susan and I are old friends at this point, I've never actually met her IRL. Hopefully that will change in the near future. You know, Susan's just another incredible friend I've made via Close Horse. It makes me feel like the luckiest person in the world to get to meet all of you, at least on the internet. If Susan's retail stories have inspired you and you want the catharsis, oh, it's such a great feeling, of sharing your own stories, send them my way. You can email me at amanda at closehorse.world or you can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and email it to me. Or you can call the Close Horse hotline. That number is in the show notes. Can't wait to hear your stories. One of the most challenging categories of clothing in terms of sustainable options is athletic wear. Yet you you can't go out there and work out in a pair of jeans or you don't want to go for a hike or a long bike ride in a dress. Although, yes, I've done both of those. I have many regrets about it. Don't be like me wear athletic wear to do these things. Active wear isn't a nice to have. 
It's a need to have. And shopping for it can be so difficult, especially if you're a sustainability-minded, secondhand-first kind of person, which I know you are. There should be a more affordable and sustainable way to purchase premium athletic wear. Well, guess what? I found one, and it's Revive Athletics. Revive Athletics believes clothing should make you feel good when you move, and that starts with how you purchase it. Shopping secondhand is the most sustainable way to shop, and Revive Athletics is committed to providing high-quality, premium athletic wear so you can feel good when you shop, and you can feel even better when you move. Everything Revive Athletics sells is very gently used, and they carry a wide variety of sizes, from extra small to 5X, and they offer all of the premium brands you've been scoping out, like Lululemon, Nike, Athleta, Girlfriend Collective, you name it. And while a pair of Lululemon leggings would cost you around $100 if you purchase them new, at Revive, you won't pay over $35 a pair. You're getting really excited right now, aren't you? Revive will also buy your gently used athletic wear and athleisure no matter where you are, and they'll send you a prepaid label to ship items into them. By keeping your gently used items in circulation, you're helping to reduce their carbon footprint. And that, that my friends, is the hashtag secondhand first lifestyle right there. All items are carefully inspected and cleaned with Defunkify, an eco-friendly detergent made in Oregon. And I know you were wondering about that. Are you glad I told you? Revive Athletics is committed to building and supporting community. They offer classes in their space in Portland, Oregon, and they also donate items to Rose Haven, a Portland day shelter and community center serving women, children, and gender diverse people experiencing the trauma of abuse, loss of home, and other disruptive life challenges. What an incredible place to shop. I mean, I know you're sold now. You're like, tell me more, Amanda. How can I shop Revive Athletics? Well, if you're in one of my favorite cities, my former home, the place I think of as my hometown, Portland, Oregon, you can shop in person at their store or you can go online at reviveathletics.com no matter where you live. And even better, I have a special offer exclusively from members of the Clothes Horse community. Use promo code REVIVEIT15 to get 15% off your first purchase. And don't worry, I will include that in the show notes so you don't have to run and grab a pencil right now. The next time someone asks you where you got your athletic wear, you can tell them, thanks. It's revived. And know that you made the best decision and saved a heck of a lot of money too. Once again, that's reviveathletics.com. You can also find them on Instagram at revive underscore athletics. Go check it out. I think you're going to love what you see. One of my missions for this year that I mentioned in the last episode is making slow fashion accessible to everyone, like all cabs, everyone. I'm so ready to do that work and I hope you are too. In one of our last episodes of 2021, which was with Fashion Forward, which is a fashion think tank, Sarah made a very important point that fast fashion democratized style and trends and fashion in general by removing the barriers of cost and accessibility. 
they made fashion something that almost everyone could participate in. Obviously not everyone, because fast fashion still refuses to dress a lot of bodies out there. But still, any person could in one way or another become a style icon, an influencer. They could be trendy and have outfits of the day. And these were all things like, I'm, I'm going to be honest, before Instagram just like did not exist. Like there were some style bloggers out there, sure. And that was a big leap forward. And there was a lot of street style, also a big leap forward. But previously, previous to Instagram, really, like most of the fashion inspiration or content you saw was on the internet, but like there wasn't that much because it was still early internet or magazines or movies. And so the everyday person couldn't participate in it the same way. But the rise of Instagram combined with fast fashion made everybody able to play in one way or another. We all kind of became influencers. Like that idea of wearing a different outfit for every Instagram photo, that started with the professional influencers, but we all started to play into it too. It's interesting that this idea of fashion being more accessible, you know, changed the way we all dress and think about how we present ourselves on social media, but it didn't cure the elitism, the exploitation, the classism and racism that existed in fashion and still exist in fashion. For a long time, if you considered yourself a stylish person and you wanted to participate in social media in this fast fashion Instagram era, your options were either fast fashion or luxury. And, you know, there was there was vintage too, but to a lesser extent. Sustainable clothing arrived on the scene as a way to show the world that you rejected fast fashion, you knew better. But it was also a way of saying, and I'm way too evolved about to care about luxury either. It was more exclusive than inclusive. Rather than activists, thinkers, and educators leading that sustainable slow fashion movement, brands led it and continued to lead it. And unfortunately, these brands don't plan on selling to everyone. There's one brand, I swear, they're like trolling me, who always pops up on my Instagram feed. I'm not going to name them, but they are like a sustainable, use that in quotes, like activewear brand. And everyone in their ads, I mean, I scrolled down through some pages and found a couple of months ago, one person who wasn't a size zero, but for the most part, incredibly thin cis women went onto their site. I don't even know if they go up to an extra large. And yet here they are saying like, we are leading the charge to sustainability. Well, not a lot of people are going to see themselves in that brand's marketing and social media presence. And so they're going to feel like they aren't welcome to join that community. I mean, think about it. If you don't see yourself reflected in this image of slow fashion that's being projected by brands and their influencer partners, why would you feel like you could just join it? You wouldn't feel that way. This has only succeeded in making slow fashion less accessible and less inclusive. It's not for everyone, at least the way it's being presented to us by brands. And unfortunately, This movement will never succeed if it's not for everyone. And that is why we need to take control of the narrative, take control of the image, the branding of this movement, take it away from these brands and own it ourselves. 
we can work to democratize slow fashion and sustainability in the same way that fast fashion made fashion trends, the idea of personal style, of being a style icon more accessible. There are a lot of things we can do to welcome others into the slow fashion movement. People who have felt excluded or invisible in today's current social media narrative of sustainable fashion, of slow fashion. First, you can share your knowledge and expertise. I know a lot of you out there have all kinds of incredible skills, experience that you could share with other people. You have to recognize that many people have not been taught sewing or mending or good laundry practices, thrifting. Yes, thrifting is something you learn. That knowledge is so worth sharing and can honestly change someone's life. Can I tell you something? There are a lot of patterns that emerge when you spend as much time on Instagram as I do. I mean, I think of, I think, I've posted more than 500 posts on the Close Horse Instagram account. Every single time I post about secondhand shopping, the power of it, the magic of it, why it's so important, someone, and it's a different person every time, posts something along the lines of, I don't know why you're shopping secondhand when you could be sewing your own clothing. And Okay, touche. Sewing your own clothing is amazing, especially if it's made of secondhand materials or you're repurposing existing clothing. But as we've talked about here on the show in the past, sewing your clothing has a lot of privilege attached to it. From the time to do it, to skill, most of us aren't learning sewing in school or from our parents, to equipment. Like, I remember the first sewing machine that I bought for myself as an adult. It wasn't a fancy sewing machine, and it took me months to save up the money for that. You have to recognize that not everyone has these privileges that allow them to sew their own clothing or thrift or mend or hand wash or all these other things. Your personal slow fashion journey will look different from someone else's, but there are ways that you can help others shape their own by sharing your skills. Like, are you a pro thrifter or secondhand shopper? Share your tricks with friends and family. Take a newbie on a thrift outing. Explain your method on social media. There's so many, so many tricks to thrifting and secondhand shopping that all of us take for granted that plenty of other people don't know at all. Get that information out there. Is sewing and mending your thing? Teach others, whether it's friends, family, neighbors, strangers. Volunteer in the community. Swap skills with a neighbor. Share tips and tricks on social media. Inspire others to try sewing. Because guess what? If you've never sewn before, it's really scary. There's a machine involved. It's really scary. Okay, how about this? Perhaps you're a laundry master. Share your laundry rescue stories on social media. Lots of people just throw out clothes because they got ketchup on it or tomato sauce or blood or chocolate or coffee. Show them that there are solutions there. Give advice to others. Gosh, call the Clothes Horse Hotline and tell me your laundry secrets. I want to hear them. I mean, I think we used to learn these things from our parents, from our grandparents in home ec class. We're just not learning that anymore. And yes, someone could Google something, but like as a person who receives a lot of questions on social media that someone could have found the answer to just by Googling, I'm here to tell you, People don't want to Google. They want to hear it from us. 
So share what you know. You can also share your time because guess what? Time is kind of like the ultimate privilege, especially for those of us who have demanding or multiple jobs, children, care for a family member, or are dealing with health issues. Time is this luxury that you just can't ever get your hands on. So help someone tackle their mending or delicate laundry. Offer to babysit or make dinner so a friend has time to go thrifting or catch up on their own mending or laundry. Take a friend to secondhand shopping if they don't have a car. Hem or alter clothing for someone who just doesn't have the bandwidth to do it themselves. Or put together a list of secondhand items that you found online for someone who doesn't have time to search themselves. Be someone's secondhand stylist. It's actually a really fun job. I want to get that job. How do I get that one? <laughs> what else? Use your voice. As a consumer, you have more power than you might imagine. I know I already said that in this episode, but you can work to make slow fashion more accessible as it exists right now. Get the brands you like to be more accessible, inclusive, and truly sustainable. Ask brands for more sizing in diverse models. We must make slow fashion brands more inclusive because in order to grow this movement, more people like I said earlier, need to see themselves reflected in slow fashion's marketing and social media presence. And they're just not seeing themselves there right now. A member of the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group, Jackie, who's been on the show before, posted a question like, are there any slow fashion brands out there with an aesthetic that's like dolls kill? And there's not because slow fashion is in such a rut. It's like, here's your bamboo earth tone athletic wear. We've got to demand better. We've got to support brands and entrepreneurs, makers, designers who are trying to do things differently. Everyone, no matter what their personal taste or creative expression is, needs to see themselves in slow fashion. Call out greenwashing claims. Friends don't let friends and future friends fall for greenwashing. And when people see you calling that out on social media, I love sometimes one of you will tag me in something you're asking a brand or calling out and I'll see other people respond to you and ask you questions and share information. You have this whole conversation and it ends with someone being like, wow, thank you so much. I didn't know any of that. And that's incredible. I get so excited when I see that. You can also ask brands to use less packaging, utilize packaging bags, boxes that are actually recyclable, not like fake recyclable or say they're compostable, but only under like XYZ conditions. This kind of action has a halo effect because customers who never think about sustainability are suddenly participating in it by default. And the industry loves to copy one another. So if they see one company brand doing things differently, they're likely to copy that too. So we can see all these different people and companies being caught up in our action, which is really exciting. Next, this is so important, and I'm about to use some lingo that I've only heard on corporate performance reviews, so I apologize now. You can lead by example because you have so much knowledge and you have tried so many new things. You can be the example in your own social circle. You, as I've said, 
You're an influencer to the people around you. So share educational posts on social media and discuss what you've learned along the way in conversations with other people. Maybe you want to tell them about why Black Friday isn't a great deal or how polyester clothes are plastic or how there's so much packaging waste associated with the beauty industry. You can also brag about the changes you've made toward a more sustainable lifestyle. Social media is a great platform for that. But you, and you can explain why you're doing it and the journey to get there and be honest about fails along the way. Shop small and secondhand first for gifts. There's nothing like a thoughtful gift to inspire others in their own shopping choices. It just works that way. We love gifts. They motivate us. <laughs> Also, be a proud outfit repeater. I see this popping up more and more on social media. I love it. The idea of a new outfit for every occasion began on social media. Thanks, social media. Um, We can influence people out of that habit, just like we all got influenced into it. So let's do some positive influence here. And lastly, be a slow fashion ambassador. How do we get more people to join the slow fashion movement? By being welcoming to others. Recognize the privileges of time, money, size, and access that currently make slow fashion out of reach for so many, so many people. When you realize that, it's a lot easier to be kind, welcoming, and most importantly, non-judgmental about choices other people are making. Guilt doesn't motivate people. I mean, just some, just a few. Don't don't go with it. Being judgy just makes people angry. That's not going to make any changes. Like we have to be supportive, right? Cheer on changes others are making, no matter how small they are, because, like we always say, it's progress, not perfection. And support and encouragement, positive feedback. It's so motivating. We've all we've all got stories about that, right? How it works on us. Be nice. I used to hate the word nice. I thought it was so bland and kind of like whatever. And I think it stemmed from a fourth grade teacher, Mr. Pizer, who said we were not allowed to use the word nice in anything we wrote. And if we did, we would get a point off. And that stuck with me is nice is a word we should avoid. But guess what? Be fucking nice to people in the real world and on the internet. Have you ever heard the phrase, you get more flies with honey than vinegar? I don't, I might have that one wrong. Maybe it's sugar. I don't know. Anyway, I personally, from a flavor profile perspective, prefer vinegar to honey. But the reality that we all must recognize is that being a jerk to other people about their choices is never going to get results. Rather than being negative, rather than being accusatory, rather than calling someone out, it's different when we're talking about companies, but when we're talking about actual people, it's better to opt for sharing knowledge over criticism. Remember, a lot of people think that sustainability is either elitist or judgy or both. And so let's prove them wrong by being kind, welcoming, encouraging, sharing our information. We can do this together. And I feel I feel really excited for all of us to sort of set the standard, to lead by example, in the larger movement to show others how great slow fashion is and how great this community is and how everyone should be a part of it because it's rad. 
I hope that these suggestions have gotten you excited about growing our community, about welcoming more people into it with warm, but not like sweaty, open arms, and really making some big changes together. Do you have some more suggestions? Send them my way. Let's share them with everyone because that's all a part of this community, right? Listen, one person can't make a change alone, but when all of us work together, when we get that critical mass, we can have a major impact on the world around us. And I'm so excited about all of the things we can accomplish this year. Thanks for listening to Close Horse, written, researched, hosted, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you're enjoying yourself, you know what I'm going to say, please leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends we're nice around here because we're, we're bringing back nice. We're saying that's a word that gets you an extra point in your essay. <laughs> if you would like to support my work, please check out patreon.com slash close horse podcast. And thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.